Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. Today, I'm going to be talking about my daughter. Again, it's kind of why I'm here, but I'm going to be giving you our background story on how we met and how we ended up together and what our process has looked like from when we first met her and maybe even a little bit before that and on what things are kind of like now and and why I've ended up in a place where I'm going to be making a podcast to talk about our life. So the first thing that I need you to understand is reactive attachment disorder. So my daughter has reactive attachment disorder, but she has the disinhibited version called disinhibited social engagement disorder. They are two different diagnoses. And if any of you have listened, you know that I have a big problem with the fact that most mental health people don't understand this. But when it how it showed up for us is really hard for me to explain because the <laughs> symptoms, the things that happened, happened so intensely for so long a period of time that when I talk about them, everyone's like, oh yeah, I kind of, I can relate. But the, the thing that makes it very intense is not the outlandish things, but the pure endurance of going through this. You know, I venture to say that anyone who has a school age child has their kid on their mind most of the time, right? You, you think about your kids when they leave to school or when you're off at work, you're thinking about your kids. But when you have a reactive attachment child, it's not even just thinking. I mean, I didn't yet yeah, you're you are engaging with that child every moment that child is around you. Now there's a reactive attachment version where they're kind of inhibited and they kind of like like to hide away and kind of, you know, be within themselves. I don't have that version, so I'm going to be speaking about the kind that my child does have. But there were times in our lives, <laughs> and I say were because she's at school right now, so that's about the only difference. There, are, When you are with your reactive attachment child, you are having a conflict. On a good day, you're going to spend 40% of your day dealing with the issues and 60% of your day on guard for whatever issues are about to come. On a bad day, you are 90% dealing with issues and 10% just like trying to run away and fretting about what's happening, you know, getting in your closet, turning on your phone, wondering what else is being destroyed and just being like, I just need a second. You know, that's a bad day. So on the bad days, it really is less about the impulse control issues that my daughter has had and more about the passive aggressive and malicious issues. Oh, hold on. I forgot. I was going to tell you our story. So our story begins with our adorable, adorable little baby being born with drug exposure in utero. Our little baby, whom I will call M, the letter M, um, she tested positive for drugs at birth and was taken away from her mother at that time. She had to go through withdrawals. Um, she was given to her father because her mother and her father did not live together. But unbeknownst to 
CPS is he had a drug problem as well. And he just let the mother move in with him. And the two of them just lived together and blissfully ignored the baby while they, you know, live their lives. And one of the reasons we know this is because they would talk about it. They would talk about how, you know, they'd put her in her crib and she would just sleep for like 16 plus hours a day and how she didn't cry and how she was just the easiest baby and, and all of these things. And they would have, um, times where they would just completely forget what day it was. And they'd say, no, I, I didn't miss this. I was there. And they're like, no, that was last week. And they're like, no, 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 it wasn't last week. So there were a lot of time gaps that happened, even though none of us were there and none of us know what happened inside the room with the baby. Um, we now know the symptoms of what happened because she was neglected. But she was probably in that situation for about four months where they kind of left her in her bed a lot and didn't give her any attention and heaven knows what else. But DCFS came in and they did an evaluation of the dad. They found out the mom was living there. They found out the dad was also using and little baby was taken to another home and maybe even two. I actually don't really know this because I, I remember one lady who brought her to us, but I also know, I remember her saying that she got her from someone else, but I didn't really ask questions because I didn't think this was going to be long. They just told us that it was going to be one week until they could set up a kinship placement with the aunt. So we have this little baby for a week and she was the cutest little baby you have ever seen. Just so adorable. I mean, there were some head malformations because, you know, she'd been left laying for a long time, but no big deal, right? Like she was still so cute and she was just the most pleasant baby I'd ever met. I mean, my kids <laughs> were screamers and my kids were terrible sleepers and here is this little one who, you know, you just, she doesn't want to be held, which I didn't know was a bad sign. And I would just lay her in her bed and she'd just go right to sleep. And that was incredible. And she just was not fussy and did not care. And it was adorable. So at the end of the week, we send her off to her aunt where she stayed for the next about six months. And then in about six months, our parent support person called and was like, hey, there's this little lady again who needs a place. And can you take her? And I was like, absolutely. Right. Of course, this perfect baby. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I will take her. So they bring her over to the house and we. No, I'm sorry, they didn't bring her over to the house. I had to go pick her up. And we were driving her home and realized that she had lice. So I was, you know, we go get some lice shampoo at the store. And I realized that she already smelled like lice shampoo, which is a good sign. Like to already smell like lice shampoo means you're probably over a lot of it. So we took her home. We um, little combed out all the little things in her hair and 
you know, here she is a much bigger, but still just as adorable, if not more adorable baby. But things got weird. She started being a little bit snarky, which is fine because babies change, right? So she's crawling and she's getting into everything. And I don't know what to do because she is getting into everything. She's 11 months old at this time. She would scream a lot, but she was manageable. It was, it was okay. So we take her around and we play with her when she goes on with us everywhere. She's, she had her first birthday. Um, we teach her to walk. She's adorable. Like she was so happy when she wanted to be happy. It was the cutest thing. Just teaching her to walk was just so cute with her little happy face. But as time went on, she hits about a year and a half old. And these things, they didn't, I mean, it was a quick, gradual process. It, it, it went quickly, but it wasn't like abrupt. It gradually moved up into these escalated behaviors where she would start to do just the craziest things. She would climb up the stairs and then just kind of lean back to fall down the stairs. And it was like, whoa, <laughs> what are you doing? Or she would, you know, start shoving stuff down her throat, just stuff. It didn't matter. It could be a blanket and she's gagging herself with it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't keep her safe enough fast enough. And I can't think of things fast enough right now to explain just how intense it was. And I'm just going to say it was so intense it was so intense. Her, she was so hyperactive. I'd never seen a baby so hyperactive. She would, she would, you know, open the cupboards and dump stuff on the floor. And I'm like, I know babies do this, you know, but then I'd put a baby lock on it and she would still get the baby lock off and dump stuff all over the floor. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, kids do this. Like this is, she's crazy, but she, kids do this. Well, for her first birthday, we got her one of those door frame jumpers where you stand in it and jump and she would jump and jump and jump and jump and jump. And I had no idea how strong I made her legs. <laughs> I'm just, I'm mostly teasing, but um, she was watching, she, someone was holding her while we were watching a YouTube video where a little baby got out of their pack and play. And she started getting out of everything just from watching that video. She never stayed in her pack and play or her bed again. And she would get in her jumper and she would fling herself forward and flip out of the jumper and just be gone. So there were times when I would put her in the jumper so I could go to the bathroom and I would come back and she's out. And I look at my other three kids and I'm like, what do you guys do? Who took her out? And they'd be like, it was me. And then I'd be like, it had to have been. And they'd be like, it was me. And it turns out it was not them. It was definitely all her. So these things just kept amplifying. I went from being someone who was like, whoa, this is annoying. Oh, that's a lot. Oh, to something so crazy. I don't even know how to explain it. So she was into everything. She was eating everything. She was attempting everything. And I didn't know that this was a sign of reactive attachment disorder, but she had zero sense of self-preservation. 
You know how when a baby gets hurt, they just kind of are like, oh, I don't want to do that again. Or they get to the edge of something and they're kind of like, wait a second, what's off the edge of this? You know, didn't matter. She would not learn. It could not be taught to her. This is not a real example of something that happened, but it is something to illustrate her behaviors. But there is a study that was done where children, crawling children were on this block And it was probably like three feet or four feet in the air. Um, I mean, that large, that high. And their moms would be right there, but they would go to the edge. And when they realized they were about to fall, they didn't go to the edge anymore. They just stopped. It was some sort of self-preservation that was just built into who they were. And they just stopped going. Well, this kid didn't have that. She didn't understand and in ways that were are too plentiful to explain and they're not popping up in my head as much as I wish they were right now. She would not try to keep herself from getting hurt in any fashion. You know, I had to be there with her every minute of the day. And when I couldn't be, I had to put bring her car seat inside, strap her into the car seat just so I could go to the bathroom. Because if she was in the bathroom with me, she would get into things and break things and like shove stuff down her throat. And like, just so much, so much going on that it wasn't safe for her to even be in the bathroom with me. Because she couldn't manage to not do things that were dangerous. And if you warned her, you know how you can usually say to a baby, "Uh uh-uh, don't touch that nothing that would make her shove it in her mouth faster that would make her rip it apart faster like she just was crazy and I remember thinking is this what people do like wow wow to all these moms I thought I had already had it hard I mean I had some very emotional babies and I had some very exhausting tantrum experiences but this was another level I had seen once ish before, but never in a baby. Like this is a baby. She's a year and a half old. And from the minute she wakes up to the minute she goes to bed, it's chaos. It is absolute chaos. And to say that I was stressed was an absolute understatement. My husband he had a really demanding, demanding job. And he was also in a ministry assignment. And so he was always gone. So I was drowning. And I will tell you later, and I have actually said in other pieces, this was not this turned out to be a positive thing. Um, that has more to do with like caregiving. And I call it the home base for the child. But I was so stressed out that I, my body quit working. I was in the kitchen. I was hearing all the same stuff again. I can't even quite remember what was happening, but I know that I don't think it was that big of a deal. And all of a sudden my arms won't lift. And then I just collapsed (laughs) the floor. I got nothing. I am having 12 panic attacks a night and I'm waking up from it, which is a sign of the adrenal fatigue, but I didn't know. And so there I am laying on the floors, screaming to my kid to call dad, you know, because I am having an emergency. I cannot move. So I end up at the hospital, find out my adrenals are all messed up. And um, I use the term I was dying. I don't know how literal that is. I know it can get pretty dangerous when your adrenal fatigue stages get high. But Drowning just doesn't seem like a good enough word. 
I was, there was no way that a little kid could be doing this to me. No way. Because you put him in a high chair, right? Like you strap him in the high chair. She would get out. You put him in a pack and play, right? She would get out. You put her in her jumper, she would get out. You put her with baby locks on the cupboard, she would open them. You would put her in a room or try to keep her out of a room and have it locked. She would unlock the door. I don't even know how she did this. I have no idea. At this age of 18 months, we did have like a dog baby gate. So it was a little bit taller than normal baby gates. And she couldn't quite figure that one out. So we had that one in her room because she would get up at night and start running around the house. And so we had that one in her room so she couldn't get out. Um, Eventually, at about two, maybe two and a half she learned how to get over that one too. She was an amazing climber. She could she could climb anything and be anywhere. I poison control was on speed dial and I had to call them multiple times. And I had all of our serious stuff locked. But one time I leave, you know, the vitamins out, which turned out, you know, thank goodness they're aware that children do this. But another time she is sitting there most of the time. And when I say most of the time, I mean, we would take shifts where if I had to go to the bathroom, somebody was holding her or she was in her, her car seat. Um, but somebody was watching her at all times. And when I was so burnt out, because they're, (laughs) when I get back, from the hospital, they're like, yeah, just, just take it easy for a year, maybe two. And I'm like, that's garbage talk. How in the world am I not even making it through life? And you're telling me to take it easy for two years? It's not going to happen. I really am lucky though, because my kids, they started making their own bowl of cereal and they started really just helping me out. But there was even one time when my littlest one, I would stick the baby in the car seat And I would put them in front of a movie and I would just go and get some of my stuff done because I could not do it. She couldn't get out of her car seat. And that was the only thing. But she could rock forward and walk around the house with the car seat on her back. (laughs) But the the, she was with the little um, the brother who was what are they four years apart So if she's a year and a half, he was like five and a half, almost six. So he'd be like, mom, she's doing it again. You know, so I had my own little alarm system. She couldn't, she didn't like to sit. Every present that we bought her was not uh, like a toy because she hated toys. Also a sign I didn't know of reactive attachment disorder. And she would, but she liked to play. So we would buy her stuff she could play with, like, things to jump on a little mini trampoline and you know a little a little balance bar or you know just stuff to play on and it didn't matter she would not play with anything but she would get into everything and in a in a very unsafe way but one of the other things that she would do is she would run off to strangers this is a sign of disinhibited social engagement disorder but i just thought in my uneducated mind that she was just weird. So we would be at the store and she would climb out of the cart to go get in someone else's cart and she would run off to another person and beg them to pick her up. And she would just, 
She was the hardest child that I had ever met. And I had actually fostered a reactive attachment child before. And even that was awful. I was I was done after that. And she was the phone call I got right after that child. (laughs) So to say, you know, that I was dying inside is my way of saying it was so hard. It was so hard. So when we hit three years old, and after my hospitalization, my husband and I decided to put the little lady into daycare. And I felt really bad because I'd been able to, you know, raise my other children like and I, I was I stayed at home. This is what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do it anymore. So we put her into daycare and, and I was I was just not helpful to anyone and I needed help. And this is what I did. But daycare was probably a mistake. Now, this is difficult for those of you who don't have the choice to stay home or, you know, I had my medical condition, I needed a break. But she most likely felt abandoned because she was sent to daycare. And so her behaviors at home got even worse. And not only to add on that, a few months later, here comes the pandemic and the the daycare shuts down. And then the daycare says, hey, we have to open with limited. So only people who absolutely need it can send kids. And I was like, I have a really hard time being at home and saying I absolutely need it. So home she stayed. And her behaviors were so dangerous and so emotional that we, you know, not only took our shifts, but there would be markers on the wall and books torn up and cat poop stuffed down the sink and the toilet and cat food and cat litter eaten and strewn in handfuls like all over the house. She, I don't know how she did this. I have no idea how she did this because we are watching her, but she was so, so crafty and so fast. She would drink cleaner. She made holes in the furniture the list is super long. And this is the list we have when we were watching her like a hawk. I would watch her most of the time. But then every once in a while, because you know, I needed a little time, and it was the pandemic, and there was lots of stuff to do. Each kid would kind of take a minute. And my oldest daughter at the time was eight, eight, or nine. Yeah, eight, eight or nine. And, um, and so she would hold her. She would just hold her for a whole hour because if you didn't, then everything was too dangerous for her. She was just too dangerous and there was no way to strap her down. So after a year of the pandemic, I decided to put her into preschool because here she is. She's three years old. She's an old three too, if any of you know what that means. So she's almost four and I'm like, I'm putting her in preschool. I'm so excited. This is going to be so great. I'm so excited. I put her in preschool. <laughs> I laugh at my stupidity because I it was ignorance and I didn't know. But this offended her greatly because anytime you take time for yourself, they are offended. They feel for some reason that their relationship has broken off and it's just like this categorical, immovable hatred that they have that you would abandon them again. Lots of fear of abandonment. So we would get our rages, our tantrums and our rages, you know, broken things, ruined carpet, toys, furniture, busted, 
books ripped, a massive pile of ruined books. I just would go through, I bought my books at a thrift store and I would just go through and have this stack of books every week that was just ruined. And I would put those by her bed and those would be her books because she got to have the books that she kind of ruined, you know, and then they would be torn into tiny pieces, which is a sign of anxiety. But I didn't know. I was so overwhelmed and, and just unaware and she would just, and the therapist that I haven't reached the therapist part yet. She's not in therapy at this time, but the therapist was like, just give her a box of stuff to tear. And I was like, no, don't I need to teach her not to tear? Uh, but essentially this pile of books was kind of the books she's already ruined. So she kind of had permission to be around these books, even if she ruined these books. So <laughs> She, she was just the meanest. She would personality shift. She would, uh, disassociate. She would do this little thing like in a horror movie where, you know, you look at the psychopath and the psychopath is like, you've just offended me. And their head kind of cocks to the side and you can tell that they're like, but I'm going to get you back so hard. And she would do this. She's two years old. It was the creepiest thing I say now that and don't forget I love her now. But it was so scary to see her face do that. And then just know that you were getting four, five, six, seven, eight hours of tantrums and screaming. She just it never stopped. She didn't ever have she she would claw her body and she would rip her hair out. And she would scream how much she hated me. And she would um she made it. She made it. I'm laughing now because kind of survival laughing where I just can't believe I can't believe it. But she made it three weeks at her preschool and she had a teacher that she hated so much. And that teacher was so rude. When I would go pick her up, she would just kind of yell at me at how how bad this little girl was. And um, by week four is, is over. She was in, I, I was so stupid. You guys, I put her in two, two day preschools. So she was in preschool for four days a week. And with the change of teachers, remember, I don't know that she has reactive attachment disorder. I'm stupid. I don't know that she is having a hard time. And so she is pulling, um, all of this trauma of abandonment, and I'm sticking her with a new caregiver all the time. She has dance class, she has tumbling, she has, you know, the teacher, I thought that this would help her ADHD, which was so obvious. I thought if I diagnosed her myself at the time, I thought she had oppositional defiance disorder and ADHD. So I still, I was ready for her to be in something. So I was like, you know what? I am going to put her in daycare. I will pay them nicely (laughs) everything that I have to help me because I needed help. And she was enrolled in October. So she started preschool in September. I have her in daycare in October. And they were the best. It was and is still an amazing daycare. They tried so hard. But being dropped off every morning was just more impactful to her than I realized. And she would have terrible outbursts and she was hyperactive. And 
So over the time we would took, we took a week off in November for Thanksgiving. We took two weeks off in December after we got COVID. And then we took another two weeks off in January because she got RSV. And by Valentine's Day on February 14th, she was kicked out of daycare. She had been escalating her behaviors and it started out as like cutting her hair and cutting other people's clothes and, and other people's hair and painting on their clothes and their shoes and playing in the toilet after other kids had used the potty to pushing other kids down and pushing down bookshelves and throwing past bins of plastic toys and breaking iPads and rage screaming at everyone and making all the other kids super uncomfortable. And that was something that I I didn't really understand because one, as soon as I would, I would walk down the hall to go get her and I would open the door to her classroom. And as soon as I did, all the little kids would be like, guess how bad little lady was, but guess how bad she was. Guess what she did today. And it was, it was awful. It was awful to know that I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. It was awful to know that the, I was searching for help and no one could help me. And I was making other people's days worse when I was searching for help. It was, I, I do not blame the daycare at all for kicking her out. They worked out a routine and this was also ended up being bad, but I don't fault them for it. I know that they were doing the best they could or they would switch the teachers because if you left her with the same teacher at the end of the day, they'd be crying like I, so they would rotate the teacher every few hours so that no teacher got to the point where they're bawling because of my kid. I, I didn't, I didn't realize how damaging it would be to rotate these teachers. I, it was, it was something that I just didn't know. And, and looking back now, now that she's almost six years old and at the time she was three, and almost four, I just think, okay, like I can see how this ended up being a really good thing. But at the time it was super traumatic for her to be kicked out. But it was also super traumatic for me. I, I think we both felt really hopeless about the situation. And it was it was really hard. But by this time, I have a therapist for her. She is going to therapy and the therapist is like, just get used to it. These kids get kicked out of school all the time. Just plan on it. And I was like, oh no, I don't want to. I don't want to. I work really hard to help my kids to succeed. I don't want to just be like, oh, you know what? You're just going to have that hard kid. Like you're just going to have the one that's quote unquote bad. Like that was really hard for me. So I quit the job that I had started And I started parenting my reactive attachment child who was four years old full time. Only this time, not only did she have complex feelings for me, but I had a few complex feelings for her. So the next few months were probably some of our darkest. She wanted to be loved, but she also wanted to be in total control, which is part of, you know, when you're a baby, I imagine that when you hit survival mode, You are so, you know, just desirous to be in control and solve all your own problems because nobody ever solved any of your problems. So here is this lady, me, who's like, no, no, I know your brain is wired to solve your own problems, but you do it terribly because you're a baby. (laughs) Like, So I need to be in charge of you. But 
oh my gosh, it was, I was dead inside. I was so depressed and so sad. I couldn't offer her anything else except for to get up and take care of her and make sure she was okay. And I, (laughs) she would scream at me and I would just stare at her. I wouldn't make a face. I wouldn't try to stop her. I wouldn't do anything because it was, and I'm not kidding. I know I speak in really exaggerated terms. I am not kidding when I say it was 10 hours a day of screaming. It was 10 hours a day of screaming. Sometimes it was only eight hours a day of screaming. Sometimes it was 14 hours a day of screaming, but very rarely was it 14. Usually it hovered between eight and 10 hours a day of screaming. So I just sat there. I was so burned out. I wasn't trying to teach her. I was just a zombie of a person who used to be alive and was now just like this walking shell of a human being because this little tiny person won. She won and I I couldn't do anything about it. But it was kind of funny because being dead inside worked really well for her. She was so much nicer after several weeks, like three, four, five, eight weeks. I think it was eight weeks. I feel like two months of of me not responding to her. She finally just did. She was just a lot nicer when she wasn't being confronted because she loves the confrontation. When I say that these kids, I think that they get stuck in fight or flight. And I think mine got stuck in fight. I think that is their comfort place as in like it's familiar to them. And so they feel the power, they feel the control. And I think genuinely they feel comfort being in the fighting place. So when I'm not fighting her, she's not getting that comfort from that. And it ended up kind of in a way, chilling her out a little bit. Um, She couldn't keep up with everyone's emotions on top of her own. So my lack of emotion was comforting to her because she couldn't even process her own world. But to process everybody else and that interaction in her world was too much for her. So my mental health was at an all time low, a lifetime low. And hers was the highest it had ever been. (laughs) So it was, and I think that is kind of how raising a child with reactive attachment disorder is, is I think that it's just upside down. Everything is the opposite of what it's supposed to be. It's, it's just so weird. Usually if you give your child love, they feel love. But here, if you give your child nothing, they're like, oh, thank you. That's so nice. That's so relaxing. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I can just tell you too, that I went through several years just walking around as a husk of a person. Nobody cared. Nobody helped. Nobody noticed. I was so shut off from my friends because I couldn't take her anywhere because of her behavior and she couldn't handle sharing my attention. So she would just be in my face and climb on me. And if she was scolded at all, then forget it. There were tantrums. If I, you know, tried to say, oh, I need someone else to have my attention for a minute. She couldn't handle it. And it was a nightmare. And other people were sometimes hurt, like other children that were around because she would be upset. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. So I stayed home alone by by myself with this crazy child. 
And my other children who were in school at the time um, were there. But my husband was busy, so busy, and I didn't have anybody. And to be honest, I'm kind of proud of how I made it through that because I I don't quite remember. You know how sometimes hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, sometimes you also get a little numb to it. And that's a gift. Like when you have your babies and you're like, what was that? That was super painful. And then a year later, you're like, I could do that again. I'm so tough. Like, <laughs> I I don't think I could do this again. But I some of it has has numbed away a little bit. Though I do have tons of recordings and tons of journal entries to remind me just how raw and difficult that time was. So we have reached five, almost six years old now. And usually by the time you reach 18, you your child switches diagnosis from a reactive attachment disorder diagnosis to something else. And Often you hear parents who are dealing with this time frame say that their child has now been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Now, I will say over and over again, it shows up in my child as borderline personality disorder. I'll go through the DSM-5 with you sometime, but I, you, will, you will have a hard time convincing me when all of her symptoms match this, that that is not what's happening. So... From that point where she is kicked out of school to the point where we're at now, I have done all the things. I have done all the things. I have cut out sugar. I have cut out colors. I have cut out all the things. You know, like you do, you kind of go that way. All the people that you used to make fun of, you kind of become as a way to be like, will this help? And it turns out if she has sugar or colors, she cannot, I don't know if her body can't process them well. And when I say sugars, I mean like cakes and candies. I mean, she eats yogurt and stuff, but she can't, she can't have that stuff or she cannot regulate her emotions at all. So we had to cut out all of those things. We had to do massive, massive amounts of talking. Um, I have my advice that I have (laughs) that I will repeat over and over, I'm sure, is absolute 100% honesty. I gave her 100% honesty and sometimes it didn't show up nicely and I'm not proud of all of the ways that it showed up, though I am mostly proud of the ways that it showed up. Um, 100% honesty so I could be a safe place for her and but I also had to disconnect that goal from being a regular mom, you know, the mom where you snuggle them and they are a piece of you and, and you love them. And, and even if they're not biologically yours, they're a piece of you because of the parenting that you put in them. And I had to just shift my mindset and say, I'm not going to have that. I am going to just try and raise this child to logically understand what she needs to be a contributing member of society when she's an adult. And we have, she, I lucked out because she is tenacious and as annoying as tenacity can be, she just kept trying. She really would be like, okay, 
you know, I'll try again, you know, and she would, she would keep trying. And we actually are in a place where I think she has made mountains of progress. And I think she's done it because we offered her a place where she could kind of filter through all of the previous garbage, the trauma, the horrible stuff. Truly, when I say honesty, we talk about her birth parents, we talk about the situation she's in, we talk about the diagnosis. I she does not know as much as I do. But she knows as much as a five year old should could. So I go through and I say, hey, I think your behaviors are stemming from this. I think this is because you're feeling anxious about this. Is that true? Are you feeling anxious? Yes. You know, like walking through every piece and it took hours, but we would kind of replace the screaming hours that were already taking up the whole day. And they dysregulated me way more than the conversation hours, but we replaced them with conversation hours. This is not, (laughs) this is not an easy task. If you're looking into adoption, know that there is a potential for this and it's not easy. But I believe if you put in these hours of discussion and talk and learning and teaching, because here is this little tiny thing who has the capacity to understand. Uh, I, In some ways, she's very smart. In other ways, she's still two years old. But she has this capacity and I would try to fill that capacity with everything I have. And, you know, she would run away and she would try to kill my cat and she would do you know, there would be barf or poop places like, like she would do all of these things. And they were all very difficult. But when I could talk her through, and I had to frame it in a way that was for her, so that it was from her angle, because these kids are naturally narcissistic. They were neglected, they were left alone, they didn't ever learn that little piece of give and take and expectation of a primary parent, I'm going to say mom, because I was the mom. And that was the role that I took. They couldn't they didn't have that from their mom or their dad. So they learned to only see things from their own point of view. And then their brains were wired that way. So you have to approach this or what we've done that has been successful for us is we've approached it in a way where we've said, no, no, this is not going to be good for you. No, no, kids that spread poop around it's not going to be good for you. Imagine if you're at school, like this isn't going to be good for you because they're trying to punish me. She's trying to punish me. But if I throw it back and hold her accountable and say, hey, this is, this is a you thing and it's a problem for you in the future. It really ended up being successful. But I feel like that's, I've gone on for so long. (laughs) That's probably another day that I can go into more depth with this. But this is a really hard diagnosis. And there's tons of other diagnoses that go underneath it. It's been a really hard road. But I really hope as time goes on and more episodes come out, that I can find a way to be helpful to anyone else that's in this situation. Because I was so surprised at how lonely and how uneducated anybody, especially the professionals, but anybody was on this. So I didn't want it to stop here. I'm just a mom. I don't have fancy things at the end of my name that make me an expert, but my expertise is living with this child and really putting the time in. And I really hope that anything that I've learned 
not only continues to be beneficial for me and her, but also can help anybody out there who might need it. I wish you all the best. I know it's hard, but I hope things start getting better. Thanks for joining.